Hello and welcome to the Art of Safety, this edition of Frontline Fundamentals. My name is David McPeak. I'm glad you're here. Let's jump right into this really, really important concept that I think will really help us understand how to truly promote safety, help people understand why it's important, and most importantly, if we get the Art of Safety right, people will want to be safe and not feel like they're having to follow rules. So, Brief introduction. Again, my name is David McPeak, the Director of Professional Development and Education at the Incident Prevention Institute, uh, author of Frontline Leadership, The Hurdle, Frontline Incident Prevention, The Hurdle. A lot of what we're going to talk about today comes from both of those books, and in particular, the second book, Frontline Incident Prevention, The Hurdle. Also comes from Incident Prevention Magazine. I have a regular column in there called Frontline Fundamentals. This is the start of a six-part series where we'll be talking about the art of safety, C5 leadership, how to lead people instead of robots, how to protect people rather than pleasing systems, and then some fascinating conversations about hazard identification and control, risk assessment, how to actually use the hierarchy of controls properly. So really excited about these series. Hope that you're a subscriber to Incident Prevention Magazine. It's a great magazine. It's free. Uh, give you the opportunity at the end, if you don't now, show you how to subscribe to it and get it. So I encourage you, uh, as you get that magazine, be sure to read the articles. Think about the things that we're talking about. Most importantly, think about how you can apply the the words that you see in the magazine, the, the things that we're talking about today, because it all looks good on the screen. It all looks good in the magazine. It sounds easy there. Not always so easy when we start to apply it in the field, but that's where it's really important. So figure out as we go through this, how can you turn these words into action? Now, I want to start the art of safety. And safety is both an art and a science. And I think it's really important that we understand the difference between those two and the implications for us. The science of safety and I'll propose we're really, really good at the science of safety. And by that, I mean, I could take any hazard that says hazards and risk are quantifiable and predictable. That is a powerful, powerful statement. Think about, for instance, uh, a lottery. If you knew the winning numbers ahead of a lottery, it would be fairly easy to succeed at winning the lottery. If we were playing in a sports team against an opponent, and when we're talking about safety, let's think about hazards or our opponent. And if I'm coaching a sports team and I know exactly what plays the other team's going to run, exactly what they're going to do, it's going to be pretty easy for me to devise a game plan to beat them. Similarly, we can do that with safety because of the predictable and quantifiable natures of hazards. That's where the science comes in. I could climb up on my roof right now, jump off the building, and based on somewhere between what I weigh, the density of the air, the, the rate of acceleration of gravity, and that sort of thing, we could actually calculate exactly how long it would take me to hit the ground and how much force I would hit it with. We can take any hazard, electricity. We can use Ohm's law. We can calculate voltage and resistance and current and all this sort of stuff. We know amperage. We have tools that allow us to measure all these things. The science of safety, the equipment we have today, look at cranes. Uh, 
anti-tube locking, the weight sensors, capacities, tip over, uh, in, in, car, in the vehicles that you drive now, collision avoidance systems. Think about PPE, things like cut resistant gloves, the, the chaps that not only will keep the chainsaw from cutting you, but it'll actually stop the blade from turning, uh, get it entangled. I mean, we have gotten really, really good at the science of safety. Disciplines like ergonomics and industrial hygiene has become really important over the last couple of years. How we assess both hazards and risk, how we use the hierarchy of controls from elimination, uh, substitution, reduction, words like that down through administrative controls and PPE. We know exactly. There's a formula for that. Here's this hazard. Here's how to identify it. I love identifying hazards as how much energy there is or could be and then risk as how long we're exposed and, and how uh, the potential consequences of an exposure could be. If we do that and we use the hierarchy of controls, that part of safety is really, really easy. And from all of that, we devised uh, task hazard analysis, job hazard analysis, pre-job briefings. We have work methods, safety manuals, procedures, all that. That all relates to the science of safety. And it is an exact formula that tells you how to protect yourself. And that part of it, to a certain extent, it takes really smart people to do it. And, and so, certainly some of those calculations we're talking about and the engineers that make the tools and those sort of things, uh, it, it definitely takes skill for that. But because they have done such a good job with all that stuff, it makes it fairly easy for us. So safety, in a certain extent, is easy. What makes it hard is the fact that there's people involved. And that's why safety can't just be a science. And that's why I'll propose maybe the most important part of it is the art of safety, which involves understanding, leading, developing, and protecting people. And on top of that, something that I, I think we're guilty of, encouraging people to want to protect themselves from hazards rather than forcing them to follow rules. That is the key to the art of safety. We have, again, we can make all the rules and procedures in the world. But if people don't value those rules and procedures and don't want to follow them, they don't do us any good. So safety is not about forcing compliance. There's nothing wrong with compliance. It's a good thing. There's reasons for all the rules, procedures. Uh, but compliance only gets you so far. We need to make sure that it stays on the floor and it's not the ceiling. It's not our goal. And the only way we can do that is through the, heart of, uh, the art of safety. So to summarize that thought, again, if you think about it, I'll say this, most hazards and risk are quantifiable and predictable. There are some. Uh, you're going to read a meter at somebody's house and there's a dog on the porch. You don't know exactly how that dog is going to act and, and that dog may act differently from day to day. So I will say not all hazards and you're driving down the road. You certainly can't exactly quantify and predict what other drivers are going to do. But for most of the hazards we face, and even those that we can't exactly quantify and predict, we can anticipate fairly well. Because if we can predict, just like I said with the lottery, we can protect. If we can predict, we can protect. So we, we need to believe that hazards and risk, almost all the ones we face, are quantifiable and predictable. And once we do that, we can protect ourselves from them. And we'll talk about that as we go through this series. But it has to start with something called C5 leadership. 
I always say this, safety and everything you do in safety is a hurdle. And if you think about track and field and there's a hurdle here and I'm trying to jump over the hurdle, if I'm just standing still, it's pretty difficult to jump over that hurdle. What's really important about getting over the hurdle is the run-up, if you think about it. And the run-up to any hurdle that you face in safety, right? And there's a lot of them. Safety is, if just based on the science, kind of easy, right? But if we incorporate the art of safety into it, and we think about things like risk tolerance from individuals and groups, normalization and deviation, drift, uh, how difficult it is to consistently communicate, and not send mixed messages. What's the relationship between safety and productivity? Uh, going out and do a job site observation, be it behavior, compliance-based, doesn't really matter. And then giving people feedback that they actually want to hear and will do something with. All those things are hurdles. Um, and again, if we just stand still and try to jump over those, that's almost impossible. Developing relationships and creating culture, that's the run-up. The more we do that, create culture, develop relationships, much, much easier to jump over those hurdles. And so that's why we're starting this series in the art of safety with something that we call C5 Safety Leadership. What is that? What is C5 Safety Leadership? In order to do that, we need to take a trip to the golf course. And I want to share an experience that I had that I think relates really well to this concept. So C5 Safety Leadership is a list of five words. They start with C. That's why it's called C5 Safety Leadership. It is by no means a complete and comprehensive be-all, end-all list of everything that a safety leader needs to do. And as we say leadership, remember, leadership comes with a combination of authority and influence. And really what we're saying in essence is seek and use more influence than relying on authority. Authority is telling people what to do. Influence is encouraging people to want to go the same direction you are. In this case, safety and protecting themselves. And so you may think, well, how in the world could golf possibly, possibly relate to this? So I'm going to share this story. Uh, a part of it I think you'll find fairly humorous. Uh, but as you go through the story, think about it in terms of the context of the five words that you see up here on the screen. This is C5 leadership. This is a strategy for how to gain influence, competence, how well you can do a job, commitment, how passionate you are, caring, how much you want to help. Really important. I think we have a limiting belief in safety that it's all about preventing harm. And it is, right? I mean, I've zero harm, everybody going home safely at the end of the day with five fingers and toes and all those sort of things, or I guess you have 10 fingers and toes, but you know, everybody's staying the same is basically what a lot of people set their goal to be. I want to protect you. I want to prevent harm. Nothing wrong with that. I absolutely agree with that, but it's half the equation. I'm not going home better than you were this morning in terms of it could be physically or it could be learning something, learning new skills, thinking about different ways to do jobs, uh, thinking about in terms of leadership, what are some things that I could do to be a more effective leader? In terms of production, what are some things I could do to be more productive? Gain efficiency, deliver a better quality product, a higher level of customer service. So safety, caring about people, 
is about preventing harm, but it's also about encouraging growth. And we define that as caring. That takes the things we'll talk about, some courage. And I'm not talking about the brave and reactive kind of courage where in some kind of emergency situation, you intervene and save somebody's life. That is certainly courageous, but that's not not what we're talking about. We're talking about leadership courage. Leadership courage is knowing you're in a room with 12 people and 11 people want to go this way and you feel like you should go this way. Just raising your hand and asking a question. It's about exercising stop work authority on the job when you're not sure. It's about having those difficult conversations with with, uh, challenging personalities sometimes. It's about Taking action, see something, say something, do something. And this is not a leadership top-down hierarchy. This is everybody, peer-to-peer, leaders to subordinates, subordinates to leaders, managers, supervisors, all the way from an apprentice that you hired yesterday up through the CEO of the organization. If everybody's bought in and has safety as a core value, it works. If not, it doesn't. And that takes courage on everybody's part. And then credibility, down there on the bottom, last on the list, not because it's the least important, but because it is foundational. Nothing, how trustworthy you are and how much you're willing to give trust, be willing to delegate, be willing to let people fail safely. Uh, Extraordinarily important. So think about these five words, confidence, commitment, caring. Notice with caring, it's in the middle of the list. Because visually, everything you do revolves around how much you care. And decidedly, no matter what your role is in working with others, whether you're the safety person, whether you're their boss, whether you're their crew member, whether you're their crew leader, whether you're, doesn't matter who you are. What's really important, people know how much you genuinely care about them. And people need to see you preventing harm and encouraging their growth. So here's the story. Here's why we're at the golf course, okay? And I, I jokingly like to say that I play golf, but I'm not a golfer because I don't want to insult people that are actually good golfers. But I've gotten much, much better than I used to be, which is not saying a lot because there was nowhere to go but up. So when I first started playing golf, I mean, a, a couple of true stories. And some of them, you really have to, it almost defies what I was talking about earlier in science. But all these things happen. I lost the ball on a putting green one time, which is somewhat difficult to do. Uh, chopped down so hard with a three wood somehow hit the top of the ball. I still don't know how it happened. Um, it actually flew straight up, knocked my hat off. Now, we all know with the hierarchy of controls, elimination is the preferred method. I fixed that. That will never happen to me again. I quit wearing hats when I play golf. So that, that will never happen to me again. Uh, and I mean, I can tell you just a ton of funny stories about things that I in a tournament one time, uh, I hit a tee shot into the kiddie pool and it had, thank goodness, there were, there were like six or seven kids in the pool. And sadly enough, the club pro was standing right beside the kiddie pool when this happened and literally had to throw my ball back to me. But I hit a ball in the kiddie pool with kids in it off the tee in the tournament. So, uh, not a good golfer, not a good golfer. But I've gotten a lot better than I used to be. Kind of super proud of the fact I broke 80 for the first time last year, which, if you know anything about golf, is is a fairly decent score. And for a golfer of my caliber, is a really, really good score. How'd that happen? 
And here's where, where this comes in. So I'm playing golf one day. Let's start with competence. And I'm playing golf with, uh, if you know anything about golf, there's a handicap system. The lower your handicap is, the better, the higher it is, the more indicative. Uh, you're not as good a golfer. Um, so there is a scratch golfer, which would be even par. Uh, and then numbers like one, two, three, whatever. And then there's some crazy good golfers. These are your PGA Tour professional kind of people, whatever. They're a plus handicap. All right. And so I'm playing golfer. It wasn't a PGA Tour uh, professional. Nobody see on TV or anything like that. Actually, a friend of mine developing culture, creating uh, cr creating culture, developing relationships. So that's an important consideration here. But so this guy's like a plus two or a plus three handicap golfer, meaning he is ridiculously good. Most of the time shoots under pole. Privilege, opportunity, honor. Played with him one day. And I call this jokingly, and the more I think about it, I don't even think it was jokingly, but the kindest insult that I've ever gotten in my life. So we finished playing around the golf, and he looks over at me and he says, David, you are courage. I guess you could call this in some sense. But he said, David, you're too athletic and you play too much golf to be this bad. Meet me at the driving range tomorrow night. Now, I mean, first when he said that, right, I'm, I'm, I'm not knowing exactly how to take that, but here he is gaining influence, right? So here he is, at that time, this would be true, the, the most personally competent, the best at this task called golf that I know offering to help me for free. So already we've, we've had a little bit of courage to have a conversation to tell somebody they need to improve. That's a courage. Competence. This is not positional authority. This is personal influence. So his handicap, if you will, me watching him play golf, me seeing his scores, that gives him some level of authority in my mind. But authority only takes you so far. See how he's gaining influence right now through all these words. So he's got the competence. He's showing a little bit that he cared, right? Because he's willing to sacrifice some of his time. He's not charging me money for any of this. We go meet at the driving range. And I think this is probably important for us all to hear, right? In order for me to improve as a golfer, I can promise you everything he told me from how to grip the club to how to swing to how to turn to how to even think about things was extraordinarily uncomfortable for me. And I did not like it at all. And it took time for it. I got, I mean, every time you try something new, right? He would tell me to try something, I would try. And, and I mean, sometimes I'd swing and miss the ball the first couple of times. But the more I was listening, willing to listen to what he was telling me, magically, not magically, I kept getting better and better and better. And I started to see, hey, this guy knows what he's talking about. The things he's telling me work. And I wanted more of them, right? Guess what happened? Commitment. Because he wasn't trying to think about encouraging growth, caring. This wasn't a one-time thing. We kind of went through this process a few times, played a few rounds, uh, spent some time driving range, whatever. Commitment on his part. Not to put in the work, and it was it was more on me at that point in time than him. But think about your role as a safety leader, and I hope you're correlating these things right now. So he started with some level of confidence. Took some courage to have the initial conversation showed how much he cared, stayed committed about it through all that. And as I started to see my scores getting lower, the quality of my shots getting better, 
holy cow, how, how credible did I view this person? And it, it, it got to the point where I'm literally begging him. I mean, think how challenging hurdles in terms of safety. Think how challenging it is to go out, do a job site observation, actually get to see people work as they normally would, be able to give them feedback, heaven forbid, they seek your feedback, and then have a conversation and an action plan and see, based on that feedback, things actually implemented that help people improve, become safer, become more efficient, make their jobs easier, increase job satisfaction. And in all that, what are you doing to the, the culture and relationships that we mentioned earlier? It worked. And I mean, I, I just cannot stress enough how much in that situation, he wasn't coming to me at that point. I'm going to him. Like, hey, watch this. Look at me swing. I'm videoing, seeing me you know, text messages. Look at this video. That was a bad shot. What did I do wrong? Kind of thing. Just basically begging and pleading for any piece of information he could give me. And then any piece of advice. I mean, I'm hanging on every word. That's what we're talking about when we say use C5 safety leadership to gain influence rather than just relying on authority and forcing people to follow rules. So think about that. In terms of yourself as a safety leader, how can you use this to gain influence? It starts with confidence. I'm, I'm glad that you're here right now. I hope some of the things that we're talking about may help you think about as a leader. How can I grow my technical skills and experience? Expertise. How much of a subject matter expert am I? What can I do differently? Improving some leadership skills decidedly is something that might take a little bit of courage. But not only that, for the technical task that you and your team do, how can you increase your skills with those? Because the more technical skills you have, the more people will want your advice and they'll come to you. And observation and feedback, rule number one with feedback is if it's unsolicited, it's always going to be extraordinarily difficult. If it's solicited, somebody's coming to you and saying, Hey, what am I doing good? What am I doing bad? How can I be better? What do I need to keep doing? Uh, that's almost, uh, not almost, that's always going to work better for you. There will be plenty enough opportunities in your jobs and your careers and your life where you'll have to give folks unsolicited feedback. But the creating culture and developing relationships, becoming a C5 leader helps us for people to solicit feedback from us. Part of feedback, by the way, not related to what we're talking about, uh, being able to give feedback has a lot to do with how much we're willing to receive feedback. I'll, I'll let you think about that. So how competent can you become? And the more competent you come, you become, the more you should believe that you and your team can succeed. And the more you believe you can succeed, probably in a lot of situations, the more courage you're going to have, that leadership courage, having the conversations, giving the feedback. Karen. Right there in the middle. How much do people believe that you care about them? Do they? Uh, you know, I, I, I really hate the perception. And sometimes it's a very warranted perception. Sometimes it's not. But as a safety professional, if you go to, for instance, do a job site observation, audit, uh, whatever you call it, um, and, and the work just stops or, you know, and uh, a lot of things happen that don't make the observation effective, and a lot of it boils down to the fact the folks that you're there to observe perceive that you're out to get them and that you don't care about them. But if they perceive that you're there to prevent harm and encourage growth, they think you care. They know you care, better yet. 
process goes a whole lot better. And, and that's tied in a lot to the commitment, the courage, and the credibility. So I really want you, as we start this series of and talk about the art of safety, how to understand, how to lead, how to develop, how to protect people, how to encourage them to become leaders themselves. That's an interesting part of the golf story that I, that I didn't share. It's crazy, and I still can't believe when it happens, but it very, very occasionally, I'll stress, very, very occasionally, I might be playing golf with somebody, and they will ask me for advice about things that they're doing, which blows my mind and probably says a lot more about them than it does me. But I think there is a relation there to what we're talking about because as we were talking about this technical task of golf and how my friend through C5 leadership, even though he didn't obviously have any clue about what C5 leadership was, demonstrated all this. Not only did he develop and improve me as a golfer, encourage my growth, if you will, but for that task, he was kind of creating a leader, right? Somebody that was now competent, committed, caring, courageous, credible enough with other people because leadership is not about your position. So, I mean, in terms of if you wanted to rank my handicap, it's 13 or 14. I hadn't checked it recently, but it's still up there fairly high. It's a long way from a plus two or a plus three. So I'm nowhere near as competent still. But how much influence have I gained with some other golfers and whatnot? All, not all because, but in large part because of that conversation and actually having some things to improve on that, that helped my game. And so we'll get away from the golf story now and make sure we understand and think about, it. and that is really my challenge for you right now is how can you become more of a C5 safety leader? How can we, in terms of safety, starts with a couple of things. And this is just a couple of closing thoughts here. The, the very first thing you have to do is actually take responsible and be accountable for safety. And I feel like we probably all think we are, but in reality, maybe we're not as much. The gauge of that is real simple. A, B, C, D, E. Accuse, blame, complain, defend and deny, make excuses. The more you find yourself doing those things, the more you are not being a C5 leader. So that, that's a gauge. And the more you're not taking ownership and being accountable for safety. So measure, really count in a day. How much time are you accusing other people or things and falling victim to it's not my fault? Like this happened because so-and-so. I'm, you know, this is my crew. I have a title called crew leader. This person is not trained and qualified for the task. That's not my fault because we've got a training department. I blame others. I'm back to that crew leader. I, look, here's my pre-job briefing this morning. This is exactly what I told them to do, exactly what I told them not to do. They did it anyway. Blame them. Complain. I, the, uh, one of the more common complaints I get, and I hear organizational culture. Well, this just can't work here because the organization and the culture is so bad. By the way, that's something we'll talk about uh, in, in future articles and the art of safety is, is pleasing systems and protecting people and culture and whatnot. Sometimes that's real. Sometimes it's perceived, but it's, if it's safety, if we're accountable, we don't complain. People and leaders want folks that develop solutions and solve problems. They want leaders 
and they look for leaders to develop solutions and solve problems. What they do not want from leaders is accusing, blaming, complaining, defending, denying, and making excuses. That just doesn't work. So it starts there. You have to eliminate that. As we talked about, you should constantly be creating culture. Culture is what drives behavior. And no matter what position you have uh, from an organizational standpoint or whatever, logistically, you can't be probably with every member of your team doing every task that they do in a given day. And culture is what drives behavior when no one's watching. So the better we get at culture, the better we get at safety. And that, that just makes sense. Developing relationships, right? I want you to go back to the golf story again and think about this. What if somebody I didn't know didn't previously have a relationship? This was a friend of mine, right? So there was a relationship there. What if somebody who did have the same level of competence, in other words, they were a plus five handicapped golfer, literally watched me play golf one day and some stranger comes up to me after a round and said that same thing to me. David, you're too athletic and you play too much golf to be that bad. Meet me at the driving range tomorrow night. I'll go way on a limb and say myself and most of us wouldn't go because there's no relationship there. It's important to create culture and developing relationships. Again, the run up to the hurdles we're talking about. As we're creating culture, developing relationships, we think about how to gain influence rather than relying on authority. We do that as C5 leaders. Competence, commitment, caring, courage, credibility. That foundation of credibility, everything revolving around how much we care. In doing so, very practical applications, what we're ultimately going to do for ourselves and hopefully for other people is focus more on hazards than rules. Encourage people to want to protect themselves from hazards, which people do, rather than having to follow rules, which people don't want to do and focus more on people than systems. We'll talk about that concept later. I hope you understand where I'm going with that. Uh, it's really easy to, in terms of safety, please the system. And too often I find that we're happy with, we've got all the proper rules and procedures, we've got all the documentations from our job briefings this morning, whatever those things may be. And we don't really look at actually the quality of those job briefings. And if there even was conversation, we're just happy we got a sheet of paper. I promise you a sheet of papers never saved somebody's life. The conversation and the quality of the job briefing reflected on that sheet of paper has saved lots of lives. That's what this is about. Caring enough, prevent harm, encourage growth. So I, I thank you for listening today, for being here. I thank you for reading the articles in the magazine. And in saying that, I want to close by giving you uh, the opportunity for a couple of things, just in case you're not already. Uh, so at IPI, the Incident Prevention Institute, uh, a really fun and free thing that we do is a, a live monthly forum. It's usually the second Friday of each month at 11 o'clock a.m. Eastern time. Uh, it, so that, that, that can vary from time to time. It's always posted on our website. Uh, there's a QR code that'll get you there. Please, 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 at least once, try and see if that's worth your time. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. If you're not already a subscriber to Incident Prevention Magazine, it's available in digital or and or print editions. Uh, it's free as well. There's the QR code for it. 
certainly sign up. If nothing else, just go to the website and click through the current edition of the magazine. See if you like it. Find some of the stuff useful. If you do, subscribe. And if you don't, don't. And then uh, those are free. I definitely encourage you to do those. Uh, as I mentioned, a lot of the articles in IP Magazine for this series and the art of safety is based on the the book there titled Frontline Incident Prevention the Hurdle. If you're interested in it, there's a QR code for it. I will, again, thank you so much for your time, for your your participation, for your uh, attentiveness, both in terms of the magazine and these webinars. The most important thing I can say is words to action. Nothing, if it stays on pages, PowerPoint screens, safety manuals, nothing that is written or said by us in this kind of environment will ever really save somebody or protect them or encourage their growth. What we all do with it and how we apply it to our jobs absolutely can and will. It works. So we got to make sure we understand the science of safety that we're really good at. For the most part, I think we're, we're, we're at least very decent at that, if not really good at it. Uh, the art of safety, where we get people involved, that's where it becomes challenging. That's why we need these skills. That's why we have to have these conversations. That's why the articles are in the magazine. That's why I wrote the book. That's why we're having this series called The Art of Safety. It works, and it's that important. So again, thank you, and I look forward to future sessions and hearing any comments or feedbacks that you've got. Everyone stay safe and be well.